Welcome to Playmakers. I'm your host, Jordan Blackman, and you're listening to episode five. So this is part two of my interview with Lauren Lanning, the game industry treasure, the, I kind of want to call him an icon, as he's either an icon or iconoclastic. I can't really tell. In any case, the great Lauren Lanning. This is part two of my interview with him. And on every interview, I go deep with the game industry leader to bring you information that helps you stay at the top of your game. You're listening to Playmakers. Okay, so this is part two of my interview with Lauren Lanning, creator of Oddworld. And if you didn't hear part one, I definitely want you to check that out because it's going to give you a lot more context about Lauren and where he's coming from and what his message is and what his art is all about. And I think all that stuff is key to understanding what's coming up in part two. And that is how someone can get started today and get funding for their content, for their idea, for their IP. We also have a pretty wide-ranging discussion about the game industry, Nintendo, Apple, Google, everything that's been happening, and we get the benefit of Lauren's incredible experience at the cutting edge of the game industry for decades. Something to keep in mind is that we recorded in 2016 before the launch of the Switch, and you'll see as you listen to the interview why the timing is relevant. We talk about the state of Nintendo, and uh, and obviously that has changed a bit over the past several months. If you want to make your game and you want to make art and you want to succeed at it, you know, he talked about in the first part of the interview, he talked about trying to build two bridges at the same time, a business bridge where he's able to sustain his business and be successful in that way, and a creative bridge where he gets to have his message and share it with an audience and that he was trying to build both bridges at once. If you want to build both bridges at once, you cannot miss either part of this interview. Here's part two with Lauren Lanning. I am contacted regularly by aspiring designers, even proven designers, seasoned designers that want to keep on getting their ideas that they feel passionate about into the games that they create, and they're upset that they can't find anyone to support them. And occasionally it does happen, and I'm thinking of the Inuit game that was released a couple years ago. Never Alone. Never Alone. That publisher actually... Uh, which is a new model, basically trying to do the things that we're talking about, like shine light on the plights of indigenous cultures, shine light on things that wouldn't normally be uh, considered uh, viable, you know, highly marketable game content. It's not like we have an audience saying, ah, oh, next year, you know, I'm going to spend $50 on the Inuit and any Inuit game that's made, you know. <laughs> but we do know that for racing, for shooting, for puzzles, we know X amount of dollars is going to be spent next year. So when someone wants to come out of the box and say, we're, we're making a game about an Inuit life, you know, and try and shed more life and compassion on the Inuit plight, you know, it's not one that necessarily VCs are going to step up and go, ah, oh, yeah, we think that's going to be a huge money returner. But it is their mission, and they're trying to do more and more games like that because they recognize that, uh, and these are seasoned guys, you know, they came out of Activision, et cetera. But they recognize that uh, at the publishing level that the world is ripe for this kind of content. Games are perfect for this kind of content. But just because they can't compete with a shooter doesn't mean they shouldn't be made. So how does that get figured out? And really, digital distribution allowed those things to start to happen. That's what I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on. For those designers, whether they're, they're seasoned or, or relatively fresh, who do want to do that, you know, who don't necessarily have pre-existing IP or following for what they've done so far, how do they kind of have their voice heard or develop their voice? You know, because also 
if we're not developing people's voices, you know, it takes time. You know, it took them time to figure out what a director was in film and, and how to develop direct right. directorial talent. And it's funny because right in the beginning, we saw pretty massive propaganda with film, right? So, we, yeah. we uh, you know, in different ways. Uh, and we had the studio system. <laughs> then you got the studio system, you know, its own, own uh, agendas. But, you know, Hollywood's kind of fascinating because – it's a little bit sensitive subject to talk about, but let's touch on it. Is we were dealing with immigrants. I, I think we've been doing pretty good on the sensitive subjects part. <laughs> okay, so. but uh, you know, the early I got a great book on the on the wall, which is called "How the Jews Built Hollywood." By the way, I'm going to put all the books and artists you've mentioned up oh, on awesome. the website. Yeah, so I, I think it's called uh, "How the Jews Built Hollywood," and it's a fascinating book because you were dealing with at the time really a minority. That even though these these people were making money and successful in business, uh, they still couldn't get into. Uh, just saying, you know, my wife is Jewish, right? So I'm kind of I'm not I'm not Jewish, but I understand a lot of the plight. And so they weren't allowed in the country clubs. They they were treated like you know second class citizens in the social scenes in Los Angeles, stuff like this. And what they started to do was shape motion pictures. And let's take like It's a Wonderful Life as a great example. They started to shape stories and want more stories that were identifying a country they'd like to see. Mm. So they were kind of making stories of a higher ideal of people getting along, being more tolerant, being noble, being honest, you know, these different things in, in, a, in a more fairness way of how they wanted to be treated. And that reflected in the content that they made in Greenlight. You know, now granted, it was all business and everyone's trying to make money. But in the beginning, there's some great stories about this stuff. You know, Meyer and Goldwyn, what they went through, what they cared about, what their own personal tragedies and successes were, and, and the types of stories that they would be more interested in backing. So it's really sort of inspiring stuff on the early foundational days of building the empire. I think it was called An Empire of Their Own. Sorry. An Empire of Their Own. That's the, the title of the book? I believe that's the title of the book, Yes. And uh, it's kind of fascinating because, in, again, you're dealing with largely at that time a discriminated class that found a vehicle to portray what they wanted to see as a better fairness in the world. And it actually, you know, who's to say how much impact Hollywood has had on the way we behave as a, as a culture today? And as, as fucked up as the United States is, and it's severely dysfunctional right now, it is still the place where people flee to. Right. Even, you know, it's kind of like Rome. Right. Like if you were on the outskirts of Rome, you were in real trouble. But if you went into the heart of it, it was a lot more civilized, you know, like depending on your status. But the United States is kind of like that. Like I, I meet Uber drivers from Afghanistan all the time, from Iraq. Oh, uh, yeah. From this Somalia. is still the dream of the world to come here. Yeah. You know, and so the United States is like it's so many things you can't summarize it as any one thing because it's really, you know, it's a nation built by immigrants. Right. And that hasn't stopped. So my point is an empire of their own was a great example of how an industry was built by people that were being discriminated against. And the media that they generated was not hateful. Right. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't trying to stimulate unrest. It was trying to stimulate a higher goal, a tolerance. higher, higher tolerance. Personally, I find that, you know, really fascinating. And as a great example, you know, that with it, when we look back, a lot of people, particularly old people go, what happened to the good Hollywood movies? You know, the good, you know, the meat and potatoes movies that, you know, it's a wonderful life that you watched at Christmas time and you just loved, you know. But, you know, the bad ones all get forgotten. So it seems like they were just good ones, but they're, yeah. I guarantee <laughs> yeah. you there are a lot of bad ones. And, 
and you know, I don't, I'm not gonna be able to uh, name drop this too well, but I think, I feel like there is still a tradition, especially in TV of kind of getting out different kinds of people and making people comfortable a little bit ahead of mainstream society. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with TV is that TV is dictated by the sponsors. And so it is driven by advertising. The reason TV is free to the home is this driven by advertising sales. And if the advertisers have any problem with the content you're displaying, you're out. Sure. That's it. You're out. So TV is only going to get so informative on the news, which is pretty much a joke today. It's absolutely a joke. I stopped watching it 30 years ago, and I got a lot smarter because of it. But I really rejected newspapers, television news. It's just, you know, it's like when I learned what was going on, I had no room to hear it to fill my mind with bullshit. What do you pay attention to? I largely pay attention to whistleblowers, people being prosecuted by governments, uh, people being represented by human rights organizations. Whistleblowers are very interesting in alternative press, you know. So WikiLeaks? No, I think Wiki is uh, – I think Wiki is upholding a lot of the status quo stuff. I mean really, if you know what's going on in this world, and I'm not going to say what's going on in this world. But if you have a better idea and know for a fact what's going on, you realize WikiLeaks is not if – they, if they claim to be what they really are, mm. they'd be revealing a lot more stuff. So the best we can do is Hillary sent some emails that uh, said uh, so-and-so of running another country is a jerk. I mean please, please. It's like, it's like I don't believe in the authenticness of WikiLeaks okay. personally um, because the, the crimes are so much greater than anything they've touched on. It's just kind of – you've got to be kidding me. Um, I also – with uh, Snowden mm-hmm. – why did he give the information to journalists to piecemeal to us over time? I don't trust that either. I think Snowden's legitimate, but why didn't you just open source it all? Why don't you let us go through it? Why don't we let a million people pick through the results? What happens when we do that with anything else? When we release a scientific problem to, the, to crowdsourcing, we solve it a lot faster, right? Any, any algorithm? He took an episodic model to his, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to his leak. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I don't want to trash uh, these outlets, but quite frankly, I, I, I don't believe them as the holy grails that they're, that they're outed, outed to be. However, Snowden revealed, you know, super important stuff to us. And I, and I think uh, I just don't trust what's coming out of WikiLeaks. I think, you know, there's, I know for a fact there's many more dangerous things that we should be aware of. and None of it has graced the pages of WikiLeaks. So come on, who are you kidding do you think this is this is kind of going back to some game stuff, but do you, do you think that any talented team could craft a successful kind of Kickstarter? Do you need at this point celebrity or IP? I think you need visibility. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was having a talk just recently with someone who's been very successful multiple times with the Kickstarter stuff. And he said, look, you have well-known designer, proven, well-known IP. You got the winning chemistry for Kickstarter. Outside of that, you have the most successful ever on Kickstarter, which is uh, Exploding Kittens, that Alan Lee was not necessarily a household name for game designers, no. right? I mean, I was a fan of his. I know the things he did. I think he's brilliant. But he wasn't necessarily like, oh, Elon Lee is doing Kickstarter. not drawing millions of people, right? But the cartoonist that he had associated with did have a million Facebook followers. So there was a cartoonist who did the Exploding Kitten stuff. And because of that, mixed with Elon Lee's brilliant approach to ARG campaigning, boom, they get over 10 million on a Kickstarter, 
So, yeah. So if you had something like, I guess we could say that was a celebrity cartoonist being used for off-case example, you know, an out-of-spectrum example, deck playing cards for, um, you know, a magic-like game, right, card game. That was way out of the box, but you had the, the science. So you had a guy who knew how to implement the science possibly better than anyone else in the world, Elon Lee or Jordan Weissman would be in the same class, right? They worked together. You, you, I'm sure you know their history together. And then you had a heavily followed cartoonist who – Together, the cartoonist was able to draw the eyeballs to the campaign because if you were following him, he was able to post on his Facebook, hey, I'm doing this thing. If you want to get involved, and then it was like, oh, I love your shit. You know, right, that right. draws it over. And then really how they executed on it, making every tier an unlockable. Like they did a number of things. I talked to Alon after that success and I asked him like, hey, man, can you tell me what you did? You know, and uh, I did the same with Chris Roberts. I did the same with Brian Fargo and. And Tim Schaefer, like, you know, I'm out there trying to learn, right? There's a case where I guess you had a celebrity. That's the most successful Kickstarter of all time. And the celebrity came not from the area you were trying to sell, although it would include the art in the package. Uh, and they raised over $10 million. So the combination of celebrity and science, I think, enabled that to happen. But really because of the social following, not because of pop so much. You know, it wasn't like a Kim Kardashian celebrity type, right? Which I'm sure if she did a Kickstarter, you know, it would just be the most enormous ever for the latest, you know, hair curl, I don't know, whatever it would be. Exploding <laughs> kittens could also work, actually. <laughs> there you go. You know, Hollywood explodes kittens, yeah. I think it's a really tough sell, and I think it's gotten harder because of the failures. And I think the failures can be attributed to you had a way for people to basically get money on a hope. I think they were always going for less money than they needed, which is a really dangerous thing. You mm -hmm. know, like we'd say, well, you know, if we're going to make a new game, we need five million. Well, who's going to do a Kickstarter and ask for five million? You're not going to get it, but ask for five hundred thousand, and maybe you'll get five million. It's like this is crazy. They always say to ask for a really small amount because people don't want to be part of a Kickstarter that fails. People only want to participate in Kickstarter once they already see it's going to succeed. So it's a weird effect, right? You can't. Mm -hmm. And they're all going, oh, I want to back guys that are honest. And it's like, eh, kind of you do. But really, <laughs> you need to be led to it. You know, who are we kidding? Yeah. Uh, so I think all that's a bit of a, a really tricky navigation for the person doing the Kickstarter, the group doing the Kickstarter. Uh, but you have to have some avenue of support that's going to bring the eyeballs because it's certainly not just going to come because everyone's scouring every Kickstarter that's available and finds yours interesting. You have to be highlighted. You know this better than anyone when you're spending your experience in free-to-play games, mobile games, things of that, right? You gotta be, if you're going to have an app that's going to go anywhere on an iPhone or Android, you have to be featured by the Apple Store or you have to have some enormous outlet of visibility somewhere else that you're drawing them to the Apple Store. But acquisition, without, without the acquisition side handled, you're, you're in deep water. Exactly. And, you know, and I'm sure you actually understand that science much better than I do because you've had you know, a lot more experience and successes in those areas where basically you know, you're dealing with like free product where you have to have 100 million people playing so you can monetize you know, less than one. Tiny fraction. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is you know, a very different philosophy that, we've been, that I've been uh, uh, executing on. Um, just, you know, I'm still a little bit stuck in the old world, quite frankly, in terms of the type of content, story games, uh, premium price product. So different categories. My, my admittance there is that I don't really 
I don't understand the sciences of free to play as well as people who execute on them. You know, one way to think about it though is that it is really the same thing. Let's say you're marketing a giant blockbuster film. You have all that marketing content. That's your free content. Mm-hmm. All, all those trailers that you're showing people, all those ads, everything you're doing to motivate people to make that final move of going to see the movie, mm-hmm. that's the monetization step. But you've mm-hmm. given them all this free content, interviews mm-hmm. on their, on TV shows, commercials, the billboards, all that stuff is generating. It's just, a, it's just sort of one way to kind of well, conceptualize to that, it. To that point, let's say when designers have asked me or small teams that want to uh, do Kickstarters and, and they say, or even get publishing deals. They're going, well, you know, our game and we believe in it. It's an idea right now. We might have a little bit of a prototype, but uh, this is how we want to do it. This is what we want to, want to make happen. And what I'll say is, oh, well, what is really special about it, right? And so let's say it's animation. Maybe let's say that's really where your guy's skill set comes from. You do something extraordinary with animation. And in some degrees, I'd put like Ori in the Blind Forest as like an animation art spectacle of you know it's just a wonderful really wonderful and that's where the strength was and say so if it's that then where can you make before you started crowdfunding where can you make some small small examples little tiny as possible examples let's think you know youtube like attention span and maybe it's animation that your excellence is pretty unique and if we could see it in a game maybe you stimulate people and i think right away to the first imagery i saw of uh, cuphead right i don't know cuphead it's the Fleshinger type animation from like the you know early 20th century. Oh, like Popeye style. Yeah, so it's like original Popeye style. And as soon as you saw it, you're like, holy shit, this is like 1920s animation in a video game. It perfectly works. Like, oh my God, they, they could create a whole genre out of this if they wanted to run with it, and they should. I don't think it's released yet. And it's they've been working on it for a while. But it's just really cool, right? The second you see that, you could get animation fans all over the world interested in your game. When I first saw the little Flash version of Limbo, you know, it was Perfect like five example. years before it came out. I was waiting. I was just waiting with my money. And what's the new one now? Inside? I think it, it's yeah, called. Inside. Yeah. yeah. And people are just loving it, right? Voting it, you know, best game on Xbox, stuff like this. But the point being is, let's say that little clip that you saw of Limbo got you interested. And if it said, follow us here, we'll be doing a Kickstarter soon, we'll tell you when it is, you know, maybe you'd say, sign me up. I want to know more about this, right? There's some... No Man's Sky did the same thing. No Man's Sky, yeah. Let's take Cuphead as the example because five seconds of footage could tell you the promise of the game because you get it when you see it, right? It's something extraordinary and extraordinarily different. Uh, Even though we're familiar with everything it's doing, but we just haven't seen that combination of it done in the game before. So when we see that, that could have, let's say that's a little clip and you're trying to make Cupheads. Let's use Cupheads as the game you want to make as an example, right? It hasn't been done yet. And you're a group. What I'm telling them is I say, create your five-second test, your 15-second test, something that shows you different and you're special. And then... Don't put it on Kickstarter. Go into the animation communities that are already sharing this stuff. Go into uh, animator.com, uh, you know, the Animation Collective. Go, go into these different places and say, hey, guys, we saw this. Uh, we're working on this thing. We hope to get this started as a real project next year. Please follow us. Please like us. And if it's cool, the animators are going to support you. Mm. If it's cool, mm. right? If it's subpar, you're not going to get – your friends might support you, but strangers aren't going to. <laughs> But if it's cool and quality, you're going to start getting some traction. 
So somewhere, even if you don't have celebrity, even if you don't have brand, you have to find an endpoint to get an audience to support you. And even if you're crowdfunding, the endpoint is not going to be Kickstarter itself. You've got to get that started somewhere else. So let's say it's an animation community. Let's say you're going to do a game, but it's all going to be in sand art or finger painting or something, you know, then, <laughs> then put it into the hobbyist community that's into finger pointing, get thousands of followers to support it, then do your Kickstarter, you know, so you have some traction coming in that's coming from a, a, uh, a segment of the audience, which would be interesting in it, that's giving you support and you're not just cold stepping right into it X amount of time till it's over and hopefully you win. That's great advice. Well, I try, you know, sometimes. We'll wait for the Sandart game to come out. <laughs> yeah, the uh, finger painting game, <laughs> which is kind of perfect for you know touchpads when you think about it. True. So a couple of quick questions. You've been super generous with your time, Lawrence. So thank you very much. My pleasure. With the technology that's coming down and starting to get mainstream acceptance, finally, you know, we're seeing AR with Pokemon Go and even geolocation. These are these are things people have been talking about going yeah. mainstream for for six years or something like that. And VR now finally, you know, in the consumer's hands. What's exciting to you? What do you think are the changes coming in the next five to 10 years? You know, it's all kind of exciting in different ways, right? Like when we really get focused, we can go, oh, that's, you know, there's different slices here that we can get excited about different components. So across the board, you know, I'm pretty excited about VR. I'm pretty excited about AR, which I think is going to be bigger, but it's going to be harder, Mm. a lot bigger because composite reality is a million times more valuable than teleported reality, meaning alternative. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like yeah. being able to walk and do email with my cell phone and tweet is a lot more valuable than having to be at the desktop. Adding right? value to reality is more yes, valuable yes. than just some total fantasy reality. Yes. and uh, Or one where I have to be stationary based, which is basically VR, because VR is not safe to move around. Right? And it's, it's mostly solitary for now. Whereas AR it seems much easier to kind of make shared. Right. Easier to make shared and harder to deploy and have a, a basic platform for to mm. do right where you could just walk down the street and see it. Right? Yeah. That's the end game is Minority Report. You know, you're walking around, you got contact lenses. If I want to see where there's pizzas on sale as I walk down the street, each one will just boop. You know, I'll see that pizza place, but then I'll see it's 3D computer graphic, holographic, uh, uh, chubby Italian guy tossing piece of dough. Mm flipping it into outer space and they're coming back down and landing on his hands and, and all that is happening in virtual space, but right on top of the pizza store, right? Like that shit's coming. Yeah. Where just imagine uh, I put on my glasses and now I see all the neon, I take it off and now I don't. That's what's coming. I mean, Pokemon Go is pretty close. You've got the training camps and now stores are like putting up signs to let people know. They give you a discount if you put a lore. So yeah. if you're willing to like bring <laughs> Pokemon to their store, they will give you a deal. You know, it, it's amazing how sometimes Nintendo, right, with all the wrong decisions they've been making and wrong customer practices that they've been employing, which is basically self-evident in what's been happening with the brand, um, that they can still come up with something as innovative as Pokemon Go. But if it were a new thing, I think it would have fell flat on its face if it weren't based on the Pokemon. I mean, and, and there have been other pretty similar yeah. products. I think this is actually based on something called Ingress, which is like a Google. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. No. But nobody was using it, so what's the fun? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I don't think Henry Ford was the first one to invent the car, but I think he, he's the first one to really make it happen, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same thing. It's like, well, 
you got to have a number of components really working for you to get the, the, the momentum to hit a successful launch. Nintendo certainly got the muscle. What they've been demonstrating lately is they lack the savvy to understand what they should do to keep, well, to just keep developers interested in their platforms, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. for the most part, developers have lost interest in their platforms, which says a lot about where they're headed. And this isn't on their platform. Yeah, which is smart, right? Because <laughs> it was smart. So who knows where they're going? I hope they pull it out. Uh, having released a product on their platform recently, I have little hope that they will pull it out because it's a philosophical problem. I mean, uh, just in, in two seconds. So we released a product. It's in the 80, 80 plus Metacritic. For, is this Stranger's Wrath? No, this is uh, New and Tasty. New and Tasty, okay. So we bring it to Nintendo. So we bring an 80 plus product that took us a lot of pain to get onto their platform, but they won't give you any real promotions if you weren't day and date with the other platforms. So they don't even understand how their wonky ass hardware system has created almost an impossibility for anyone to want to invest all the extra cash to make the title that they're trying to make run on PS4, Xbox One, PC, be compatible with this thing, their, their box. Right. Which is, which is just this, like, what are you thinking? And yet, if you don't, do, if you don't have day-and-day day release, they're not going to promote you on their store, even though there's no products for their audience. So their gamers are in a total drought of quality content. But Nintendo's marketing practices will not help you promote better product offering to their audience because of some silly policy, which basically brings us back to they're making worse mistakes than Microsoft was pre E3 2013. I mean, it's like, if you see that, okay, so let me just ask this question. So your customers have not enough games to play. Yes or no? Well, yeah. Okay. And so when someone brings games, invests money to bring games to your platform, are you going to let your customers know about them because they don't have enough games? No. Okay. We're writing you off because you don't get what is making Web 3.0 work. Why Sony won this round for having the insight to understand how to support self-publishing, which I think was really driven by what the mobile companies had already done. Apple starting off with free dev, you know, basically free uh, APIs, right? Free dev kits. And free apps. Free apps. So you're going to stay in this old world where you want to set this high bar that What's happening is, well, your last two systems, basically, you don't have third-party support for. Why did that happen? Now you have people, customers, that have bought your product, and when a new game comes out that's actually good, and people actually took the time to make run well on your console, you're not going to do anything to promote that product into your audience. And the answer is, that's right, we're not. And you go, okay, now, why should anyone support your products now? as developers? And that's the big lingering question. And the answer is, no one is. I have this theory, I don't really have a name for it. Let's call it the circle of consoles. And, and the idea is that all the major platform holders go through a cycle where they're popular, they're easy to develop for, so they become popular. Then they have to deal with the glut of content, so they close down the um, pipeline. This is not so much true in the case of the Apples and the Androids, more, more of a Sony, Nintendo, Microsoft And so they become filled with rules. One of the other platform holders sees that gap. The developers are finding it annoying to work on that platform. 
their next platform is very easy to work on and you have a shift, which is why how Microsoft took it from Sony, Sony took it from Nintendo, you know, and now Sony took it back from Microsoft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now we're getting into that zone where I, I call it the Iron Curtains of Gaming, which <laughs> is you, you basically owned a territory, which was basically a format, a device, Xbox 360. And then you said, you can't self-publish here. You got to go through our, our big retail partners, which is basically the big publishers who are delivering discs. But uh, as an indie developer, we're not going to let you self-publish. Now, Sony started enabling that to happen, right? Even on the PS3. Mm-hmm. Um, and Steam was, was really first outside of the mobile companies. And so what happened? They got beat up so bad, they had to adapt quick. But this is the way the world is moving. There's a great book. It's called, I think it's called Nudge. And it's on, um, it's about Silicon Valley business practices. And it, and it identifies sort of the shift from the old world, which was like Microsoft wins the operating system game you know, war and, or actually creates it, right? <laughs> it mm-hmm. creates the, yeah. the uh, operating system war. And, uh, and in such, then it, it's about becoming a monopoly and controlling everything, right? Which is a, a large way of the way that uh, Nintendo started, but with a more sort of insular model that didn't allow such scale, even though they had huge success. Then the world comes along and then you start having Ebay's open, and what they're about is they're about individuals building business on top of their business, right? So you have now Google Ads, eBay stores, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then you have Facebook allowing companies like Zynga to build their business on top of their business. So businesses become platforms for other businesses, not just businesses become successful monopolies that you can try to make deals with. Hmm. You know, and it's a whole different way. So the so the way is, and this is where we saw, you know, the term of APIs really proliferate. Right? Is is uh, it happened more in the social landscape? You know, the 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 social media tools out there were like, hey, get our API and write your own shit into here and see if you can sell it on our network. You know, it, eBay being the perfect example. You could create your own store. You could sell your own shit. You could handle it all yourself, but if it weren't for eBay, you never would have been able to do it. And that was a fundamental shift in terms of empowering people to build businesses on top of other businesses versus uh, in Apple. Let's just take Apple in that example. So they know we need to highlight the best product, not just our product. We need to highlight the best product so our audience knows how great a device we have. Right, so then you have your Apple Store highlighting the top-rated products, uh, and our developers know that they can get you know attention and they can succeed. That's right. So when we build our product for those devices, we say, which in the case of us was Stranger's Wrath and Munch's Odyssey, we say it's got to be brought there in an excellent way. And if it is, we'll get highlighted because if we aren't highlighted, we're not going to sell anything. If we do get highlighted, we have a chance. But in order to get highlighted, we need to have high quality. Well, that didn't matter with Nintendo because they're right. stuck in the old world, right? right? Whereas the new world is like the, the customer, getting our customers that bought into our install base is more important than just trying to sell them our own software. And so this is what Apple recognized, Android, eBay. You know, you, you go on across the board, right? What types of Web 3.0 businesses allowed themselves to be a platform for other people to reliably build businesses on. Now, you can argue, well, you know, Facebook changed the dial and screwed Zynga, you know, after they were mega successful. Those things happen. But 
But they, they, I think they, they, they had to do what they did, Facebook. I, I agree. You know, it, it became spam heaven, right? Yeah. I was deleting friends that were sending me Farmville invites. Exactly. You know? Exactly. So <laughs> Not if you're... blocking the message, deleting the friend. Right? It was like, what the fuck is all this noise? Um, but the point being is that when we look at the future, it's really about that. If you're going to have a platform and you try to keep it so behind your own iron curtain that when even other people come there trying to make your customers happy and you don't do anything to facilitate that ability, your lunch is going to get eaten by someone else who is. And so, you know, that's very much, I think, where Nintendo's left itself today. And hopefully they pull it out. I mean, you know, it's a legacy in gaming, right? They pulled it out from the disaster that Atari had created. And, uh, and they pulled it out from the GameCube disaster. I mean, I love the GameCube as a player, but uh, yeah. from a business yeah. standpoint. Yeah, so with all this uh, you know, time and lessons, I think we see another familiar pattern emerge, which is the older they are, the more they get entrenched in an older legacy with uh, you know with older dysfunctions and they and out of momentum and scale and you know solidification of organ, large organizations bureaucracies uh, yeah. they try to keep old business practices into the future and that what do we see someone else eats their lunch remember when Netscape <laughs> remember when people mentioned Netscape you yeah. know <laughs> well Nintendo really created the whole I, I believe they it was their idea that you know the the publisher should pay for all the manufacturing costs to Nintendo. Had Atari not started? I'm not sure. It was before my time. Of getting, I'm not sure uh, either. That's interesting. Yeah. Remember the seal of approval? You had to have it like officially, yeah. Yeah. officially licensed. Well, no matter what, they had to manufacture the cartridges. Right? Mm-hmm. But it was the same with our Atari. Like It wasn't until PlayStation, I believe. I don't know if the NES. What was the NEC model that was out there? NEC. Uh, oh, the Turbo Graphics. And, yeah, uh, yeah, Turbo Graphics. I think you even had to go through them to print your discs, but it wasn't really well. In consoles, you still have to pay a, a licensing fee. The to licensing fee. Your, your disc. Yeah, yeah. but they could have charged the licensing fee on sale instead of on manufacture. Uh, yeah, but then they would have carried the risk, the financial risk for the manufacturer, right? Well, could, you could pay for the manufacturer, but not pay for the license until it sells. That would have been Maybe nice. it just yeah, that would have been nice. <laughs> yeah, because even I'm thinking Abe's Odyssey, we were paying what seven fifty, seven ish dollars per licensing fee to manufacture a ninety nine cent disc. Well, yeah. And so this creates the environment where everyone is so so excited to go digital. <laughs> right. You know? Right. And you get, you know, all the all the hassles with uh, you know, cost of goods to, to physical retail, right? And all the limitations. But digital has been a massive breath of fresh air. In a lot of different ways, and I think because of it, it's allowed us to rebuild a business that, that uh, like I said, unless I was going to go out and get financing and really, you know, prove to investors why I was going to make them a lot more money, which would have been my day-to-day life, just m- ensuring that that money came back, and if that meant turning a story into war story <laughs> instead of a noble story, you know, that, that's what I would have had to do. Instead, we were able to use the power of the brand to redistribute content that we own to build financial resources to be able to then go and start executing on newer content, getting to where we are now, where we're really delivering brand new content. And so as far as that new content goes, what's next? Uh, we got Soulstorm. It's not a remake, but it's inspired by Abe's Exodus. The short of it is this, is I wanted to retell that story because basically time, money, and business shaped it into something that was was not the original vision of how Abe's Quintology was going to unfold, which is why at the time, 
I had this story about Soulstorm Brew and addictions and, and this and that. Basically, Abe's Odyssey was a story about how the, free, the slaves wake up and free themselves of their oppressors. And Abe's Exodus was really going to be part two of that, which was, and then the slaves wake up to the fact that their own habits and addictions bring their own oppression. Wow. And so then they have to free themselves from themselves. Story and, of my life right there. <laughs> Oh, I wouldn't know anything about it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, having some experience in these things. But in reality, what happened was Exodus just wound up being a game we had to get done in nine months. And uh, as a result, script's due next week. It's got to be executable in nine months type of thing. And it wound up being a story. The team did a great job. There's no baggage there. But it wound up being a story that was not what I planned on having as the second piece in the quintology. And so it sort of threw my intent of the big epic story, the five-piece story that I wanted to tell. And when we made New and Tasty, uh, we asked the audience, we said, if we succeed in this, what else would you want us to, to make? And they said, do the same thing to Exodus. I mean, they say, yeah, new content. We're like, well, we can't really afford new content. And then we said, but what would you like to make? And they said, well, do the same thing to Exodus if you can do a good job with New and Tasty. And then we did a good job with New and Tasty, and it was successful. And I was like, shit, I kind of promised them we'd do Exodus, but I really want to change it. I really want to change it back to an original vision of what that story was supposed to be and then the gameplay that would go with it. So we dove into it thinking we'd start doing a remake, and then we got some mechanics working. Uh, that are pretty pretty wild stuff. And we went, okay, shit. We just dug our hole, and now we're building a whole brand new game that's based on a story about brew and addictions. Uh, and it will still take place with some of these facilities in, in concept, Soulstorm Brewery, you know, Rupture. A reimagining. A reimagining. So it's a whole different take that is inspired by that original, you know, story so to speak but it's getting back to what the original intent was so it's actually part two of the quintology but i want to be careful in saying that till it's out okay <laughs> which i just kind of blew but really that's my intent is that it really is that and uh so far so good so fingers crossed and and we definitely took on a much bigger hit on cost and energy and time to uh you know try and make it happen and it's interesting this gets back to your original business stories in the beginning. So we had to ask ourselves, well, what's the risk and how do we execute and, and where do we fall out on this? And we decided that the biggest risk was not going fresher, cooler, more intense. Mm-hmm. That was a bigger risk. And we're not an entity that spreads its bets because we don't have enough bets to spread. So we got to make sure that what we bet on wins. And so it really has to be high quality. If you look at the Metacritic on the Oddworld games, you know, it's, it's uh, consistently in the 80s. But you really, you know how hard it is to make games, man. It's really, you really got to be committed to delivering as excellent as you can with losing all the sleep that it takes to get there. So that's what we're working on now. We really, we really dug in deeper than we were expecting to. I think the audience will be really happy. Our job is a lot harder. I hope the audience will be happy. Our job's a lot harder. The game is going to cost more. And it's a, and it's a big risk, but we got to make it great. And that kind of brings us back to if we can make it great, I think we can, we can count on a 2x return. And anything above that would just be wonderful and keeps us in business longer and lets us to have more freedoms. But our ultimate sort of financial goals on it are relatively conservative, you know. And it's and it's kind of weird too because we're building stuff that, you know, we're shipping twenty pounds of product in a market today where really you should be shipping one and fostering one pound of product into the audience, learning from the audience, refining on it. Really, the way free to play does it better, right? You know, you don't build the a triple A 
20 pounds product and then dump it into the audience. You, 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 you have something smaller, you're testing, you're learning, you're iterating faster. And if it hooks, if it catches, then you're really fueling it. And hopefully you understood enough of it that you know where it's going. You know, so we're still building like that premium priced indie product. It comes in the box. It's not, it's not free to play. It's not going to have the sales potential of a hit free to play. But, you know, it's the safer bet for us at this time. But it's a lot of work for, for less returns, you know, when we're honest to ourselves. Right. But you're telling your story. You're saying what you want to say. And um, like we said earlier, 2X is a pretty good X, you know? <laughs> 2X is not a bad X. You know, if it was a house, you'd buy it in a second. You know, if you yeah. But you really have to keep that quality bar high. And I think you got to keep some surprises high. And you got to make people feel your love of the building of the product when they're playing it. And at the end of the day, it's got to be, you know, all the highfalutin stuff, you know, the, the philosophical stuff we were talking before that lets us go home and sleep at night, you know, whatever gets us through the day. All that is really interesting uh, until you don't have a good product that's good entertainment playing game. Right. And then all those ideas didn't mean anything because you have something that no one wants. So it's got to be a good piece of what its original intent is, which is a great game. It's fun to play and you can have fun whether you really digest it at deeper levels or not. And that's what it's got to be first. And then hopefully it has you can embed the layers that you want to make it deeper so that you have uh, hopefully, you know, your 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 hooking a, a fan base, a generation with some more memorable hooks. And then they hopefully support you, you know, thereafter. And that's a lot of the good currency, the sort of uh, human currency that we're riding on is a lot of people believe that, you know, we actually do put our heart and soul in it, try to do a good job, try to respect them as a gamer customer, you know, player. And so far it's working, you know, but I have no illusions that, you know, I might go broke on this one, man. You know, there's never any illusions. <laughs> the longer you're in the business, the more you know the upsets can happen. Well, you, you never know what's going to happen, but I think there's no way somebody could listen to this interview and, and not know that you're, you're putting your heart and your soul into what you do. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Lauren, for coming on. And it's been great talking to you. It's been very inspiring for me personally, and I'm sure for the audience as well. That was part two of the interview with Lauren Lanning. After something like that, there's so much that goes through my mind, so much I feel like I could share with you guys. But let me just close with this passing thought. I think that when you think of these great creatives in the game industry, you often think that they're just thinking about the game and just thinking about the message and just thinking about graphics, gameplay, game mechanics, all that sort of stuff. And of course, they are thinking about that stuff. But you can tell from the interview with Lauren, you know, from everything to the art that inspires him, to the message that's in his game, to his deep understanding of the platforms and the players, you kind of got to have the whole picture, right? You got to understand the creative side and you also got to understand the business side. That is a theme we've already seen in the interviews, and that is certainly a big theme for this show. Sometimes you can get lost in the business world. Sometimes you can get lost in the creative side. You got to keep both pieces in mind. That's what Playmakers is all about, and thanks for being part of the show so far. Again, all the links to the people and resources and tools and movies and all the stuff Lauren talked about in the interviews is up on the website, playmakerspodcast.com. Check it out, and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>